a selection of readings from Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Desire without knowledge is not good, and whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. What a person desires is unfailing love. Better to be poor than a liar. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Michelle. Michelle found out about 10 minutes ago that she was reading that, so well done. <clears throat> so this summer, we are doing a series called The Way of Wisdom. Uh, we're, we're dancing in and out of the books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and um, all of our Midtown uh, locations are doing this series, and one of the other pastors said, it's kind of like, we're, we're kind of going to go to like the summer camp of wisdom. Like, I hope we enjoy this. I hope it's kind of fun. I hope we make some new relationships um, and some heartache, but I hope we, we have some fun at the summer camp of wisdom. And, and then it got talked about that the differences between Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, these are pretty stark difference. Um, there's a pretty stark difference in the way that these books read. They're both books of wisdom in the Old Testament, but they read very differently. And so Proverbs got talked about at the, hot, at the uh, summer camp of wisdom uh, to be like the hot tub. Like it's kind of something that's way too hot at first, but once you kind of sit in it, it starts to feel great and you kind of got to sit with it long enough till it starts to feel good. And then Ecclesiastes got described at the summer camp of wisdom to be the blob. Uh, which is kind of like, what just happened? And I wasn't expecting that. And are you sure you can do that? Um, and is that safe to even say? Uh, that's kind of how Ecclesiastes reads. Ecclesiastes is kind of like a punch in the face. And Proverbs is something that slowly marinating over time starts to kind of make sense and feel good. And both of those together, the Bible would say, can give a more complete picture of wisdom. And so what was just read for us was, was three passages from Proverbs and, and two passages from Ecclesiastes that all speak to desire, the, the nature of desire. So that's what we're doing this, this summer. We're, we're taking all that, that these two books or a, a lot of what these two books would say about a singular topic, and we're going to try to get a fully orbed picture of what the Bible has to say in relationship to these topics and what does wisdom look like with these topics. So the topic for today is desire. And we, we have a lot uh, that we could say about desire. I'm not going to pretend like this is an uh, exhaustive uh, teaching on desire. First question in the back, can we read this? We good? Good font size? Good. So uh, what the Bible has to say about desire is, is vast, but these selections of readings, uh, here's where we're going to focus this morning. Our, our thesis passage comes from Proverbs 19.2. That was, that was one of... The, the readings that Michelle read for us, Proverbs 19.2 says this, desire without knowledge is not good. Pretty simple. 
So here's the goal for today. Here, here's what we're gonna attempt to un, unpack today. This is, our, this is kind of our, our launching pad verse. Desire without knowledge is not good because if you don't know, if you don't understand, if you don't have wisdom to go along with your desire, it's not good. And so if we're gonna understand desire, we've gotta know what our desire is all about. And then the very next line in Proverbs 19, Proverbs 19.3 says, they will be like someone who has hasty feet, says how much more will hasty feet miss the way? Meaning this, if you don't know what your desire is about, it's not good because you're going to be like someone who's running around in circles and who's running around to all these different things. You're going to be missing the way, missing the truth, missing reality, missing joy, missing contentment. If you don't understand and have knowledge and, uh, and wisdom about your desire, you will be like someone with hasty feet. You'll be running around in circles, not knowing that why I'm running around in circles is because I don't understand my desire. And so the question for today is, is can we shed some knowledge on our desire? Because I don't know about you, but many days I'm so tired from the hasty feet. Some days I don't even realize how hasty my feet are, but it all comes back to, according to Proverbs 19, the fact that I don't know what it is that I desire. I don't understand my desire. I'm unaware of the fact that what's making me run in circles, what's giving me hasty feet, is that I don't have insight, I don't have knowledge, I don't have wisdom in relationship to my desire. So here's a question. Do you know what you desire? Does your desire have knowledge with it? And it's not just an intellectual knowledge. It's a, it's a wisdom. It's, a, it's, a, it's an insight. Do you understand your desire? Because if you don't, you're going to be like someone with hasty feet running around. And some of these lines, some of these passages, the rest of the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes readings that you guys saw are trying to give the reader insight, wisdom, and understanding about their desire. So here's the, if this is our thesis question, our thesis, our kind of our launch pad, knowledge with our desire, what do we, what, what would wisdom say about our desire? Comes later on in the book of Proverbs chapter 19, Proverbs 19.22 says this, what a man desires, and not man at the exclusion of women, what human beings desire is unfailing love. What a man desires, what a human being desires is unfailing love. What a human being desires is to be loved perfectly. And then it says, better to be a poor man than a liar. That's what chapter 19, 22 says. What a man desires is unfailing love, better to be a poor man than a liar, meaning this. It's way better to be poor than it is to lie about the fact that what's driving all of your desire is your desire for this, unfailing love. And the word there that the Hebrew uh, Old Testament, Proverbs 19, 2, uses for unfailing love is a power-packed, very mysterious word called hesed. It's translated about a hundred different ways into our English Bibles. <laughs> no one can quite get to the heart of what hesed, love, is. But essentially it's this. It's the never-ending, never-stopping, never-giving-up, never-quitting kind of love that says to the recipient of the love, my love for you has nothing to do with you. My love for you has everything to do with me. And the strength of hesed love, the commitment of hesed love, is completely dependent on the one who's giving the love. So the sturdiness, the faithfulness, the unendingness of hesed love has to do with the giver of the love, not the recipient. And the Bible says that's what you and I desire. We desire to be loved as people who don't make the love that we're receiving dependent on us. We desire to be loved so unfaithfully, so unfailingly, so unendingly that I know that the reason why I'm being loved has nothing to do with me, that I'm being loved and it doesn't 
fall or, or gain or grow or, or lessen based on my performance or my lack of performance, my obedience or my disobedience, my doubt or my faith, my, my faithfulness or my unfaithfulness. The love that I'm dying for, the love that I desire is to be unfailingly loved perfectly so that the lover of me doesn't change their love of me depending on how I'm doing that day. And then the Bible keeps going. Ecclesiastes chapter three, that was the last passage that Michelle read. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, not only, not only do you have this desire for unfailing love, it says that God has placed eternity in the heart of human beings. Do you know how big eternity is? It's vast. It doesn't have space and time and limits and boundaries around it. And God says that that's the size of your heart. He's put eternity in the heart of man. He's put eternity in there. And so here's, here's the idea. Mary, Proverbs 19 and Ecclesiastes 3 in this conversation about desire. Do you know that you don't, you don't just desire unfailing love? You desire eternal unfailing love. You desire to be eternally loved with wild abandon. You desire to be eternally unfailingly loved. That is the beginning of giving some knowledge to our desire. Oh, that's what I desire. And now I begin to see, I don't have to run around with hasty feet trying to find something that will satisfy this because I've got eternity in there. I've got eternity in here. And so running around to the next experience or the next relationship or the next season or the next paycheck probably isn't gonna satisfy the size of eternity in me because those are all very finite things. And so nothing finite is gonna satisfy the infinite in me. So in the wonderful uh, children's story that was written for adults, um, I've mentioned it here before, it's called Hope for the Flowers. I've got several copies in my office, you can go take one. It's written by a, a lady, an Episcopalian priest named uh, Trina Paulus. In Hope for the Flowers by Trina Paulus, I'm gonna keep making plugs for it. In Hope for the Flowers by Trina Paulus, she talks about these two caterpillars. One of the caterpillars is named Stripe and Stripe wakes up in the beginning pages of the book and he realizes that he's not satisfied with the way his life is. So he's got to kind of get out from the, from the little area where he lives and he's going to go explore the world and find something that will make him happy, find something out there that will make me satisfied. And he sees off in the distance these other caterpillars climbing this tower that goes up above the clouds. And so he sees it off in the distance and the closer he gets to it, he realizes that, oh, that's a caterpillar pillar. That's all caterpillars just climbing over each other to get to the top. It's called the caterpillar pillar. And all these caterpillars are just clawing and, and elbowing. They don't have elbows. I don't know what they're doing. But they're, they're, they're pushing each other out of the way to get to the top of the caterpillar pillar. And so finally, Stripe gets up close to it and he asks someone at the bottom of the caterpillar pillar, what's up there? And someone at the bottom says, no one knows, but it must be awfully good because everybody's rushing to get there. So I don't know what it is that's up there, but it, it's probably gonna satisfy me because look at how much these people are clamoring and calling to get up there. It's gotta be good, right? So Stripe begins to climb and he's, he's got this long journey and that's a, a large chunk of the book. And he's scrambling around and he's using and abusing other caterpillars to get to the top. And when he finally gets to the top, he realizes, he makes this statement, there's nothing up here. At the top of the caterpillar pillar is just caterpillars who are at the top of the caterpillar pillar. And Stripe says, something is really wrong. If, this is all, if we're all that's up here, there's got to be something else. Like there's got to be something more. There's gotta, what else is there if we're the only things at the top of this? 
I've wasted all this time and climbed over my friends to get here. Well, way before Stripe the Caterpillar climbed the Caterpillar Pillar, uh, the author of Ecclesiastes was trying to say the same thing to us. In one of the readings that Michelle read, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, I, I wish we had read the first nine verses. We'll get to that in a minute. But what was read for us was Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. Listen to these words about someone who's chasing a satisfaction for the eternal desire in their heart. Listen to what Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 say. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was the reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, all was chasing after the wind. So the author of Ecclesiastes, no one really knows who it is, but he identifies himself as this name, Kohelet. He was the king over Israel, the, the Bible says. He was a very wise, very powerful, very wealthy man. Most people think it was Solomon. And he says here in Ecclesiastes chapter two, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I denied myself no pleasure. And guess what? He also had the means to get anything he wanted. And at the end of all of that, at the end of all of his seeking after pleasure, denying my eyes nothing that it wanted, it was, it was vanity. It was a striving after the wind. Have you ever tried to grab wind? Have you ever tried to bottle it up? Can't do it. He's, he's saying, I tried to satisfy this in me and I denied my eyes nothing that I wanted. And I got to the end of that and I still wanted. I still wanted something. It wasn't done. It wasn't satisfied. It wasn't quiet. It wasn't calm. I still had hasty feet. I denied myself nothing and I had the means to get whatever I wanted. And after all of it, I was still desiring this is what the caterpillar pillar is trying to say too. What happens when the thing that you thought would fix you, satisfy you, quiet you, and calm you doesn't? That you thought marriage would satisfy and quiet you, and now you're married and you're still unhappy. You thought more zeros on a paycheck would do it for you. You thought that if I just made X more amount of money, I would finally be satisfied, I would finally be quiet, my soul would finally be at rest, I wouldn't have hasty feet anymore, and now you're making that money and it hasn't quieted you? What do you do when the thing that you thought would quiet you doesn't? What do you do with the fact that you've had tastes of the world's water and you're still thirsty? See, our eternal desire for unfailing love causes us to try and get eternal meaning, eternal satisfaction, eternal joy from finite experiences. I need more money. I need more sex. I need more security. I need more intimacy. I need more success. I need more peace. I need more meaning. I need more beauty. And however it is that you finish that sentence, I need more blank, and then that will satisfy me. Whatever the next season is holding out for you as a promise of satisfying this desire, however you finish that sentence, hear from someone, the author of Ecclesiastes, who says in chapter two, I denied myself nothing. Whatever it is that you fantasize about, he had. Whatever it is that you dream about could satisfy you, he got it. And hear from him, I had it all. I was still desiring because none of those desires are eternal, unfailing lovers. That's what they promise. They'll satisfy you, and they don't. So if you don't want to take Cahelet's word for it, the author of Ecclesiastes, or Stripe, the caterpillar climber, listen to some other modern-day prophets 
in speaking about this reality. And I would wager with you that these, these people I'm going to read quotes from, that they, some combination of these people had whatever it is that you fantasize about. And listen to how they talk. Jim Carrey. I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Tom Brady, he plays sports ball and he's very good at it. <laughs> this was several years ago in an interview with 60 Minutes, Steve Croft, after Tom Brady had won three Super Bowls. That's a big game if you're not familiar. He had won three of them. Listen to what he says to Steve Croft. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and I'm still miserable? There's got to be more than this, right? Or how about the ever-piercing, ever-haunting lyrics from U2 written 30 years ago? I've kissed honey lips. I felt the healing in the fingertips. It burned like fire, this burning desire. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Or how about this? A Rolling Stone article from 2002, a journalist from the Rolling Stone went and sat for months with Hugh Hefner and followed Hugh Hefner around, the, the founder and CEO of Playboy. This is what this journalist says about spending all this time with, with Hugh Hefner. But the more time I spent in Hef's company and the more I spoke with his friends, the more inexplicable he seemed. It became obvious to me that somewhere in the depths of his imagination, he was dissatisfied with the life that he had created for himself. It haunted him, obviously and constantly. At one party, I watched him duck away from the crowd and then stand silently in an empty room, trying to catch his breath and just shaking his head, trying to muster up some enthusiasm. On a quiet Friday night, I then watched him assemble guests for a movie, then slip out to be all alone. I saw him head upstairs to take a nap. And most surprisingly, I watched with amazement as the people at his side failed to ever even notice him. Here was a man clearly annoyed by his own party in life. That should make all of us stop because I could read about a dozen more of those that whatever combination of fantasy world that you go to, I need more money, my kids need to be a different way, I need more relationships, I need more sex, I need to have more success in my job, I need more security at home, whatever it is, you, you could write the check that these people have gotten all the things that you think will satisfy you. They've got it and way more. Money, fame, beauty, influence, sex. They've had your fantasy world and then some. And listen to how all of them are described. They're miserable. So even if you haven't been able to, like Solomon, like Kohelet in Ecclesiastes, even if you haven't been able to deny your eyes nothing, which that's what we say to ourselves, right? That, that's how we justify our fantasy world. Like, I know money won't satisfy me, but if I could just have like $100,000 more than I currently have, I'd be good. Like, I'd love to just, I'd love to find out for myself that money won't satisfy. <laughs> hear, it, hear it from a man, Kohelet Solomon, who was the wisest, richest person in the world at the time that he lived. He denied his eyes nothing. And he was still miserable. So let me ask you this. Do you have knowledge with your desire? Do you know what your desire is all about? Do you have an understanding about your desire? Because if you don't, Proverbs would say, you're gonna be like someone with hasty feet missing the way. 
Do you know what's underneath all the other actions and all the other desires and all the other experiences of your day to day? Do you know what you actually want from life? And here's what's easy. I know that someone in the room, I know that many of you in the room are going, okay, yeah, I've got some knowledge with my desire. I've got this unfailing love, but I'm not, run, I'm not an addict. I'm not doing anything crazy. I'm not, I'm not expending all of my money. I'm not, I'm not pouring myself out. So this is probably a good talk for the extreme version, for the Hugh Hefners of the world, for the, for the celebrities of the world, but this doesn't really apply to me because my desire, my eternal desire for unfailing love doesn't really feel like it's affecting my day-to-day very much. Except then we would read Proverbs 4.23, which says this, and it was the first verse that Michelle read. Guard your heart above all, above all else because everything you do flows from it. Funny thing about that word everything in Hebrew is that it means Everything. And here's what the author of Hebrews is trying to say, or author of, of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Your eternal desire for unfailing love doesn't just manifest itself in the like noticeable public sins and crashing and burnings of people. Your unfailing desire for eternal love drives everything you do. Everything you do. Or as it has been famously and bluntly put, when a man knocks on the door of a brothel, He is looking for God. When you go on a date, you're looking for God. When you go for a run to work out, you're looking for God. When you have a casual hookup, you're looking for God. When you fantasize about a better life when you're falling asleep, you're looking for God. When you imagine an extra zero or two extra zeros on a paycheck, you're looking for God. When you discipline your kids, you're looking for God. When you go on a date with your spouse, you're looking for God. When you show up at church, guess what you're looking for? Everything you do in your life is driven by your attempt to try to satisfy this desire. It's how clear the Bible is about the nature and the weight and the, and the depth of your desire. So for one question of reflection this week, where has your desire without knowledge led you? Where are you unaware that this is what you desire and so you have hasty feet and you haven't even realized it? You've run to the next thing. You've put hope on the next venture. You've got the next season already planned out and how that's gonna look and you haven't even realized it, but you've taken this eternal desire for unfailing love and you haven't applied that knowledge to your desire and so you're running around for something to try to satisfy it. What are you chasing that you think if you got it, it would finally satisfy you? Do you know those things? The Bible is not, it doesn't, it doesn't mince words on this. It, if you know it or not, it is still driving everything you do. And desire with knowledge, desire with wisdom doesn't look like you necessarily even avoiding all those things. It just looks like you know, you knowing and understanding as you walk into those things that my desire for unfailing love is what is driving this action right now. And if I don't understand that, I'm going to crush people. If I don't understand that, I'm going to ruin all of my relationships. If I don't understand that, I'm going to continue to be miserable because I'm going to demand for this finite experience, this finite relationship to finally satisfy eternity in my soul. And I can't do it. It's why we eat food. Because being hungry is just a reminder of how hungry our soul is. And so I'd rather eat a little bit of food than deal with the fact that my stomach growling is just reminding, that it, reminding me that I have this forever empty inside of me. It's why we have sex. 
because we have such a desire to be naked and loved at the same time that I will expend this physical experience with someone just for the moment of believing maybe this will make me feel unfailingly loved for a second. That's why we go to concerts because I have this desire to just connect with something bigger than myself. And you know what? Here's what makes all those things dangerous. For a second, they give you a hit. Oh man, that felt so good. I need more of that. I gotta get more of that. I gotta eat more expensive food. I gotta have better sex. I gotta go to different concerts. I gotta, I gotta expend myself in this quest to satisfy eternal unfailing love because it's affecting everything I'm doing. And so maybe when I get a little hit, oh, I'll get a little bit more of that. It's why those things are so alluring. It's why they're so promising because all of those things promise to satisfy this. It's what marketing agencies have figured out about human beings. Let me be very clear about this. Marketing agencies have a ton of knowledge about desire. It's why they try to sell you cars with sex because what they're saying is if you buy this car, you'll feel like this. And I know that you're a creature of desire way before you're a creature of thought. So if I can speak to your desires, it's what Victoria's Secret has figured out. They're selling underwear. And what they're saying is, if you buy this underwear, if you wear this underwear, you'll feel like this. You can, you'll be satisfied like this. They're selling clothes. And they're not talking about how well they're made. They're trying to sell your desire on something. And if I can get to that place, you'll buy it. And none of those things ultimately are bad things. It's when we look to finite things in the everything that we're doing to satisfy this, those things that we attach our desire to become deadly things. They become poisonous things. Do you know how much you're crushing your relationships by demanding that they satisfy the, the desire for unfailing love? Do you know how much you're crushing your spouse by demanding them to love you with perfect hesed love all the time? Do you know how much you're crushing your friends by demanding that they satisfy this? If you don't have knowledge with desire, you will not be able to enjoy anything. Because every encounter, every promotion, every vacation, every date night, every conversation will be carrying with it your demands that this satisfy my desire for eternal unfailing love. And you are then forcing people, we force people to quiet the weight of the eternal desire in us, and they can't do it. It's why, in the words of Chris Martin from Coldplay, my favorite theologian, he says this on their last record, Head Full of Dreams. I know it gets a bad rap. You're wrong about it, though, okay? And <laughs> up and up, the last song on that record is, is profound. Here's what he says, one little line. Think about this word picture. It's like, he's talking about this, by the way. He says, it's like trying to empty out the ocean with a spoon. Let, let that... <laughs> Let that image sit with you for just a second. That the idea of trying to empty out the ocean of desire in you with a spoon, that's what we do with all of our little encounters, our little experiences, our desires for more money, our desires for more meaning and significance and mattering in the world. We're going, come on, do something. It's not doing anything. It's like trying to empty out the ocean with a spoon. So do you know what you want more than you want to stop being single or more than you want to be married or more than you want to be divorced? Do you know what you want more than more money or more sex or more fame or more security or more influence? Do you know what you want more than those things? And here's what desire with knowledge looks like. It looks like understanding and having insight and wisdom into the fact that what I desire is this. Behind everything I'm doing, every relationship I'm in, every encounter I'm having, every moment of my day is driven by satisfying this. Do you know that? 
That's desire with knowledge. That's what wisdom has to say to our desire. That you have an eternal desire for hesed love. Do you know it? It's better to be poor than it is to lie about the fact that that's what you desire in everything. So what do we do with that? What does health and becoming wise look like with desire, with knowledge? Well, the Bible ever so gently and ever so consistently over and over and over again reminds us, teaches us that there's only one place to get hesed love. There's only one place that you can experience the freedom of not demanding every body and everything and every new season to satisfy your desires. Listen to these infamous words that I know if you've grown up in the church, you've heard. They come from Psalm 23, verse one. Everybody knows that if you've been around the church, it says this, the Lord is my shepherd. Do you know how that verse ends? Psalm 23, one, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Meaning this, the Lord is my shepherd, I don't want anything else. And that's not David speaking with hyperbole. That's not him trying to put a spiritual bow on anything. He's saying, do you know that when the Lord is your shepherd is the only way you're ever going to get this? When the Lord is your shepherd, he's your caretaker, he's your provider, he's your defender, he's your justifier, he's your good lover. Only when he is your good lover will you stop wanting anything else. Only when the Lord is your shepherd will you stop trying to empty out the ocean with a spoon. That's what unfailing love can do for you. It can actually get to the place deepest in you that's driving everything you're doing. It can get there and it will give you everything you want. The Lord is my shepherd and now I don't want anything else. The Lord is my shepherd. I have no more wants. Or, the Lord is my shepherd, I don't desire anything else but that. Which is why the psalmist Asaph, the the book of Psalms has lots of different authors. David wrote most of them. Sons of Korah wrote some. Asaph wrote some power-packed ones. Psalm 73, 25, it was in our call to worship. Listen to what Asaph says to the Lord. Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That's bull, right? He didn't actually mean that. He didn't actually think that he had experienced something and could continue to experience something that could make it where he would say with full conviction, there's nothing I desire more on the earth than you. That's not him trying to be super spiritual. That's not him trying to fake it till he makes it. He's saying what Psalm 90 says. Psalm 91 says, satisfy me in the morning with your unfailing love. Because if you don't satisfy me in the morning with your unfailing love, oh Lord, I'm gonna run to a bunch of other lovers for them to satisfy him. He's saying, and I've tasted it. I've had the Lord be my shepherd and he's made it where I don't want anything else. That actually is the only way to be free to enjoy anything. Now you can enter your marriage, you can enter your career, you can enter your parenting by not demanding for them to satisfy this. I already have everything I need. I already have everything I want because the Lord is my shepherd. Now I can actually just love the people around me and not demand that they be perfect lovers. So how would we ever do that? How do we ever sing out Psalm 23, 1 and mean it? How do we ever sing out Psalm 73, 25 and mean it? 
Well, the Bible would say it's only after we see how much the Lord desired us that we would ever make him the object of our desire. It speaks to this in a lot of places, but perhaps the most explicit place in all of scripture that speaks to this reality that we're trying to talk about comes in Hebrews chapter 12 in the New Testament. The opening verses of Hebrews chapter 12 is talking about the suffering of Jesus. And it says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him, translation, for the for the satisfaction that was set before him, for the contentment that was set before him, he endured the cross. Meaning, there was this carrot on a string out in front of Jesus. There was something out in front of Jesus that when he saw it, when he got it, when he realized, that's what I really want. I'll be willing to go through anything to get that thing. That's the joy that's set out in front of him. That's what was alluring him to go and suffer. I'll do anything. I'll live through anything. I'll die through anything. I'll suffer. I'll carry anything. I'll do it to get this joy, to get this satisfaction, to get this object of my desire. Do you know what the Bible says that joy was? Do you know what the Bible says the object of Jesus' joy, the object of Jesus' satisfaction is? Without hesitation and possibly with like, God, that's too close for comfort. That's like too good not to be true. The Bible says over and over and over and over again, the object of Jesus' satisfaction was you and me. It was his people From heaven he came and sought his bride. We were his bride that he knew if I could get my bride, I'd be satisfied in my soul. It's not that Jesus was lacking anything before he left heaven. It was that he loved something enough to say, that is the satisfaction of my soul. That's what Isaiah 53 says. Out of his suffering, his soul shall see his purchase, his treasure, and be satisfied. That we were the object of his desire that unfailing love drove him to spend a great cost that he might receive his reward. He made us the object of his desire so that we would make him the object of ours. And that all is very theologically true. Let me tell you about some experiential theology about this, that the unfailing love of your good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep, you've got to know this, that the Lord being your shepherd, the unfailing love of your Jesus is so good that he gives that unfailing hesitation love to people who expend their desire on things without knowledge. That all of us in here would say, I've spent a lot of my desire economy. I've spent a lot of my time trying to satisfy this desire. I have told Jesus, I want other things in earth other than you. I have spent my desire time trying to fill this hole with something other than Jesus. And then Jesus steps in and says, yeah, and I love you anyway. Because my love for you is unfailing. It doesn't change based on what you've done or haven't done. And so it's actually only after you've had a bunch of failed attempts to satisfy this desire that you can taste unfailing love. So if you're miserable right now, if you've expended a lot of your time, if you've poured out your heart's desire to a bunch of things that haven't satisfied, you're real close to experiencing the joy and the contentment of this. Because you're going to find a Jesus who says, I know where you've spent your time. I know where you've spent your money. I know what you fantasize about. And none of that changes my love for you. Because my love for you is a hesed love. It's not dependent on you. Your good shepherd laid down his life for his sheep. You have everything you want and there's nothing you desire in heaven or on earth more than him. Let's pray.
Jesus, uh, it takes being together, it takes coming underneath your word to even see um, reality. And so we bring our broken cisterns, we bring our um, crippled feet to your table. We want to feast on you. And in a moment of sanity, we could actually begin to say, you're my shepherd and I don't want anything else. Would that be what drives us into worship now as we cry out and confess? Would that be what drives us as we go from this place? That we leave as people who are satisfied, not wanting. I ask all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.